Welcome to the Bethesda Christian Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit yourbcc.org or download our mobile app from the App Store. He's in the waiting. He is in the waiting, never failing. That's our great, great God. He has uh, done so much for us, blessed us so much as we heard at the open. We have uh, an anniversary this month, and we also have one tomorrow, June the 25th. June 25th, 1989, the sanctuary that you're sitting in was dedicated. So that was 30 years ago, believe it or not. If you've been, uh, if you're new around here, you've been here for a while, you come in and say, wow, this is a brand new church. We've been here in Sterling Heights uh, really for over 30 years because a few of the services were held initially in the dining rooms before this sanctuary was dedicated. And it was June of 1989, which was reflective back to June of 1934 when this church was established. 85 years ago, Mrs. M.D. Beale left her house and she said with some trepidation, she towed three children with her, uh, her 11-year-old daughter and a nine-year-old son and a three-year-old son. She walked a mile to Van Dyke, Nevada to a little red brick building, she said. It was an old tire store that her and... uh, Some friends had meticulously cleaned, and she said, that was about it. The building, that was it. That was the best thing about it. It was clean because it didn't have any chairs. It didn't have any song books, and she didn't really know what to expect when she arrived there on that Sunday morning in June of 1934, but she wrote about 25 years later, uh, she began to write in a monthly publication the church put out basically her memoir, her story. So each month she added a chapter. And for about two and a half years, she wrote her story. And so about in the middle, she, she got to the point where she was talking about that first day. And I just want to share a couple uh, lines with you of what uh, Myrtle Beale wrote reflecting the beginnings of Bethesda or what became Bethesda Christian Church. She said, I'll never forget the picture as I stood in the doorway that first day of what was known as the Bethesda Tabernacle that Sunday in 1934. Here in the little barren building, whose only virtue was cleanliness, stood the people who had come to the service. Now she talks a little bit about the the silence that fell, and there was a group of two and a group of three over here, but there was no place for them to sit because they didn't have any chairs, and how were they going to sing? They had no song sheets or song books, but then she writes, at this very moment, there was a commotion at the doorway. To my amazement, I found some people unfolding folding chairs from the trunk of a car in front of the building. The Lord had spoken to the pastor of the United Brethren Church on St. Cyril Avenue. He had sent us a dozen and a half folding chairs for our new, uh, not new, but serviceable, and a similar number of used songbooks, which we could have 
uh, we could have until we could acquire some for our own to replace them. You can imagine what feeling came over me as I saw again how God was mindful of our problems. It's an amazing testimony. about this woman who just stepped out in faith and went to this building and didn't really know what was going to occur that day. And here the Lord sent, uh, sent someone who had chairs and some songbooks. He goes on in this chapter to relate about that first service, how there was uh, a woman who was there and she describes her as an alcoholic And she had children, but she got saved and delivered at the end of that first service. And that's why the church is here. As we heard at the open, his truth endures to all generations. It began as a uh, Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, truth-believing church, and we are going to maintain that for 85 years we've been a church that stands firm on the word of God and we will definitely continue to honor that legacy and move forward standing on the word, reflecting the beginnings of a woman who was a little bit bold in her faith, I must say. And as you know, since the beginning of the year, we've been talking a little bit about boldness. Now, I don't suspect any of us are going to just walk out tomorrow and start a church or find an old building and begin to sweep it clean. But God will put people in our paths that we can take time to share the word of God. We heard our prayer request today for someone and we're not so much desiring that physical healing, but the spiritual healing, the opening of a heart to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and Sometimes it just takes that little step of boldness. So let's pray. Pray with me what we've been praying since the beginning of the year from Acts chapter 4. Lord, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Amen. Amen. That'll be continuing the legacy of this church. Now, I've been talking to you for the past number of weeks about construction, being under construction, God working on us, using the example of road construction as a little metaphor to tie into or an analogy, if you will. And I was driving yesterday. I don't know if any of you did any driving in and around the community uh, yesterday, but a lot of the lines were being painted on the roads. And as the line was painted, they would drop a pylon, I don't know, every several hundred yards. And at the end of where the lines were drawn, they would drop a pylon. So I live off near a canal road and down canal, all the lines were getting painted. And uh, I was also on Clinton River Road. They were painting the lines. And these pylons were everywhere. And you know what? Nobody paid attention to them. By the end of the day, they were everywhere. I don't know if you were driving around, but they were smashed. They were upside down. People turned corners, knocked them over. They put their tire tracks over the nice white paint. It's all down the road now. Do you know construction can be messy? It definitely can be messy. 
And I've been using the imagery of construction to look at the events in a life uh, of a man named Job. And it was a little messy for the guy. It can happen. He uh, was under construction and he discovered that God is in the waiting. God is never failing. Just like we heard in that song a few moments ago. And as we were introduced a few weeks ago to this man named Job, we saw his life was humming along very smoothly, wonderfully. He was extremely blessed. And then in a single day, one single day, he lost everything. All his children, 10 of them, gone. He lost all of his wealth, his flocks, houses destroyed, things, everything gone. And now talk about experiencing a problem. And drawing an analogy to construction, it kind of reminds me of the sinkhole that occurred over there at 15 and Hayes or 15 and Garfield. I remember driving home on Christmas Eve a few years ago and the roads were blocked because in one evening, this sinkhole opened up and people's lives were changed and transformed. Some people lost their homes. And of course, if you lived over there near 15 Mile, between Garfield and Hayes, uh, what a terrible time that was. Because when it occurred just a few years ago, that was the second time. And you can imagine people uh, might be living in fear. And Job was living in fear. He was living in fear that one day, one day, this sinkhole in his life would open up. And of course, it occurred. And... What did we learn? What did we talk about that first week? We should anticipate God's working in our lives. Don't be afraid because God will work on us. God will work in us. God's hand in forming our lives is ever present to awaken our hearts and our minds to his presence, even in the painful times. And then the following week, we talked about the alternate routes in Job's life, his three friends who came to offer him ad ad advice. And we learned not to be like Job's friends. Though they might have come with the best of intentions, they offered some advice that, for the most part, was crummy. It just really wasn't good advice. So we, we talked about yeah, approach someone if you know someone and you're going to be that alternate route in their life if they're under construction and you're going to be there to bring comfort and open another way that you would come with the best of intentions, but don't make any assumptions about why they're in their issue. Come with love. Come with humility and pray before you would go and take the time to listen and put yourself in the place of that person. Then respond and validate their pain. Acknowledge their pain. It's real. And before you start dispensing your advice, like you should do this and you should do that and go this way, maybe take some time to ask some questions and ask, can I offer you something? Because sometimes people just want to vent. They just want to talk. And even ask yourself, what would comfort me? Would it be somebody telling me what to do at this point? And maybe you might answer, no, I just want to blow my top. And maybe it'd be good if someone would just listen. 
So don't make it about yourself. Don't say, oh, I know exactly what you're going through or that kind of thing unless you know precisely. And use God's word. Use God's word when you bring any advice because God's word is powerful. And it's truth. It's truth. We know that. And then we moved on then from Job's three friends and the alternate routes, so to speak, that they brought and talked last week about how long, how long would this go on? Job was confronted and talked to by a mysterious fourth friend. He had these three friends that brought him some bad advice, but then this, this man shows up, a young man. He wasn't really introduced at all. He is just suddenly on the scene, and he presents to us a, an image of Christ. He p- portrays Jesus, and he talked to Job, and Job realized he was complaining against God, and he was complaining against men, and he shut his mouth, and he repented, and he was restored. And of course, some, some of us have lived that story, and it's a great thing to be restored But we know some who have continuous ongoing pain and some who even, their life ends and they're still in pain and they weren't restored. So what could the example of Job show in such a situation? Job, well, we saw he was focused on the natural. He wasn't realizing he was also a spiritual being. And his affliction had affected that perspective. And his young friend told him, Job, God's talking to you. Even in in your trouble, he is drawing you. And the word we read was wooing. Job, he's wooing you. And for us, it's a reminder. It doesn't matter the circumstance. Whatever the circumstance, whether we're in sunshine or we're in a storm, whether life is going smoothly or we're under construction, Jesus Christ is with us by our side. How long will this go on? That question really loses its significance when you know Jesus is right there with you. So Job learned that God was drawing him. God was with him in the midst of his trial. His young friend, Elihu, said, Job, those who suffer, God speaks to them in their affliction. He's won you from the jaws of distress. And he set Job straight. But then God showed up on the scene. And God addressed Job. And that was really a stunning moment in his life because God said, Job, where were you when I created? Where were you, Job? God laid into this man pretty, pretty heavily. Hey, Job, how's the, how's the stars and all the constellations hanging out there in space? How does all that work, Mr. Smarty Pants? That's kind of the way it comes across. It, it does. What what keeps them in their order? You don't know anything about creation from the fish to the birds to to the animals and all the strange things they do and the way they pick the place that they live. 
Hey, Job, can you tell me why that happens? Will you, a mortal, contend with the Almighty to correct him? Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me? This is God speaking. Would you condemn me to justify yourself? And the Lord kept going. But Job didn't. You know, he got smart. After Elihu really opened this up, and then Job heard from the Lord, he said, I'm not speaking anymore. No, I I spoke out of turn. I'm going to put my hand over my mouth. I'm shutting up, and I repent in dust and ashes. And the man was sincere. His repentance was absolutely sincere. God received his sincere repentance. God will receive genuine and sincere repentance. And God showed him mercy. Job had been in a state of denial. He really had been denying that he needed anything. God had initiated this work project in his life, this construction. And we know the account. We've talked about it. God said to Satan, the devil, hey, have you considered my uh, servant Job? He's a great guy. He's he's an upright guy. He's blameless. Have you thought about dealing with him? So God initiated this project because Satan said, oh, yeah, I'll I'll take him on. I'll wreck his family. And then then he said, you know, you've blessed him. Of course, he hasn't turned against you. Let me touch the man. And that's when Job was covered with boils and sores. This Uh, construction work in Job's life began. It was painful. It hurt. And over and over again, Job said, I don't deserve this. I do not deserve this. This is an injustice. God is not just. I'm innocent. I am innocent. And he denied the need for any change, any improvement in his life for months. And we know because we read last week about the prolonged number of months that Job was in his suffering. He complained, I haven't slept in months. God's tormenting even my dreams. I can't even sleep because I see terrors. I have these night terrors. And he was denying his need for God to be working on him and working in him. When, when it comes to road construction of any kind or any kind of project, any kind of refurbishing, be it your house or whatever, sometimes there are those that deny the need. Now, you might live in a community where the road is terrible, maybe even in front of your house, and you complain to the township or the city, and the response back is, oh, no, it's pretty good. Oh, it doesn't need to be fixed. Maybe 10 years from now, we'll, we'll get to that. And you're saying, but there's this, this big pothole right here. Don't you see it? Oh, no, it's okay. It's all right. No, that, that's acceptable. doesn't need to be fixed. You know, or maybe it's a project at home. Have you ever had projects at home? Husbands and wives? And, and, and the wife says, hey, the bathroom really needs an update. Don't you think, husband? I mean, look at it. The faucets are leaking. The, the, the toilet, it flushes by itself all the time. I mean, it's, it's messed up. Come on, the bathtub. Look at the rust stains in the bathtub. We, we should do something about this. I got this vision. 
I got this vision of, of like a cherry vanity with, with a granite top and his and her sinks. And, and over there, you know, a, a stone tiled walk-in shower and, and a whirlpool tub. Wouldn't that be beautiful, honey? And the husband says, the bathroom's fine. <laughs> what are you talking about? It doesn't need anything. Have you seen the back of the house lately? Now we could use a, a, a beautiful composite deck, right? And then uh, forget that, that whirlpool tub. We, we could have a sunk-in jacuzzi model 575 with the lounge chair and the 49 jets. Don't you, and, and then in, the, in that corner over there, we could have the Weber Summit grill with the rotisserie option. Yeah, and then the gazebo that, that could seat eight. Honey, that's what we need. Forget the bathroom. You, you know, we all, got our, we all got our ideas of what's a need, don't we? And we'll all tolerate certain things or deny that certain things need to be fixed or refurbished or taken care of. And we might not agree with each other when it comes to these kinds of projects in our own lives that are in the natural and we certainly might not agree with God when he begins a project on us. God, what are you doing? I don't need improvement. I'm good. No, that's not a pothole in my life. Leave me alone. And we deny it. And so I thought if we looked a little deeper at how Job responded to God's hand in his life, to the pain that he was enduring, and how he responded to, jo to, to God, because Job was in a bit of denial. If we look at that, it might be instructive to us to pull us out of that place where we might be saying, no, no, I, I don't need this. I don't need this work done on me in my life. So let's look at some of the symptoms of denial in the life of Job. And if we see ourselves in them, it, it might help us to move beyond that, that place of denying the need to a place of realization. God is with me. God is in me. God's doing this work, and I need it. But when we're in denial, what's maybe one of the first things, one, one of the early signs in Job's life and in his heart, he was stubborn. Stubborn. He began to dig in his heels. And stubbornness was exposed. And I want to read to you a bit from Job chapter 27 that shows us how he was digging in his heels. He was stubborn. He was going against God. Job 27, this is verses 2 to 6. It says, as surely as God lives, who has denied me justice, the Almighty, who has made my life bitter, as long as I have life within me, the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not say anything wicked, and my tongue will not utter lies. I will never admit you are in the right. Job talking to his friends. Let me repeat that. I will never admit you are right till I die. 
I will not deny my integrity. I will maintain my innocence and never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. Now, that sounds like a pretty stubborn guy. It's a classic case of denial. You are not right. God has not given me any justice. He's made my life bitter. I will never admit to you anything till I die. Now, Job's friends, yeah, of course, they had given him bad advice, but it, there were some nuggets there. But he was never going to admit one thing. Not a single thing they said was right. I'm innocent. I'll never let go of it as long as I live. Now, that's really, that's really anchoring yourself. He wasn't about to move one bit. Completely stubborn. Closed his mind. Nothing his friends could say, not one word of it, could he accept. And as I said, it was a, it was a lot of bad advice, but there were some nuggets of truth. But no, he's not going to consider it. And this is a symptom of a hard heart, of a hardened denial, denying the need for any improvement, denying the need for any change at all. And Job was in need. He was in need of a submissive, uh, teachable, forgiving heart, a heart that was willing to be transformed by the Holy Spirit of God, but he was stubborn. And in his stubbornness, uh, he moved to, an, to the next level, to the next place of know-it-all. Job 27, 11. In his response to his friends, he said, I will teach you about the power of God. Remember what he said. I'm not going to listen to you at all until the, uh, until the day I die. I will never admit you're right. Not one thing. But now let me say something. I will teach you about the power of God. I will teach you. The ways of the Almighty, I will not conceal. All right. So here's a bitter guy. Job was bitter, stubborn, dug in his heels, closed his mind, and closed his ears completely. He wasn't going to listen to his friends. Claimed his innocence. And I can't believe God would allow this. No way. This is an injustice. And now let me teach you a thing or two about God. All right, you think you got, you think you got all knowledge. You think you're smart. You think you're wise. Now you listen to me because I've got the answer. I know what I'm talking about. And I'm going to teach you. All right, well, what did he teach? Because it's recorded. So we can read on and find out what Job taught his friends. And you know what he taught his friends about God? Not much at all, really. If you read it, it's like Job started, and let me tell you a thing or two about God, and then that's it. You know, he just, he, he changed the subject. That's exactly what he did. First, he said, I'll teach you about God. And he said, well, God's not, God's not with the wicked. God's against the wicked. All right, well, listen, that's his friends have been telling him that over and over again. He just didn't want to hear it because they were implying he was wicked. And he says, God's not with the wicked. God's against the wicked. 
Okay, Job, we can all agree on that. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, now tell us something we don't know. And you know, he really didn't. For all his bluster and for all his, his saying, I know it and I'll teach you a thing or two, he didn't really reveal anything new about God. And he, he, he stayed there and just his heels dug in. He went a whole chapter. As a matter of fact, you can, you can go and read it. He, he went on all about wisdom. He just changed the subject totally. And he, he, he preaches to them about wisdom when he didn't know anything at all. God's against the wicked. Now let me tell you what it means to be wise. It was just change the subject. Uh, continue in his stubbornness. Claimed to have the answers. Didn't really know what he was talking about. So he was denying God's working. He was stubborn. He was a know-it-all. And now what what did this build to? What did it lead to? It led to self-righteousness. Now he's going to get off on a complete... uh, it's it's, It's all about me and I am great. In Job chapter 29, after he... Uh, gave this dissertation on wisdom, and he gave his, his preaching, Job just turns the focus now completely on himself. So he tells his friends, I'm going to teach you a thing or two about God. He tells them what they already know. God doesn't, God doesn't really listen to the wicked. He goes on to preach some message about wisdom, changes the subject, and now he turns the focus on himself. He says, I'm really a great guy. I'm awesome. I am awesome. You know, when I go to the city gate, Everyone stops, and they take, a, they take note of me walking in. The young men step aside. And the old men stand up in respect to me. The noble men, they stop talking. Everyone commends me. And I'll give you a few snippets from Job 29, because the whole chapter talks about him. 29, I'll read 13 to 17. Because Job continues. He, he says, the one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was the eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was the father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. And he goes on. I, 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 I. I mean, this guy is pretty stuck on himself now. If you read Job chapter 29 and take note of it, 37 times he uses the personal pronoun, I, me, or my. I do this. It was all about me. My counsel was the best. He turned everything inward about his greatness and glory. Pride welled up in him. That's never happened to me. No. Can we relate to some of these things he's going through? Job had moved right into league with that devil. You know, he was now living in Satan's territory through his self-righteousness. Because man's righteousness, man's uprightness, has got nothing to do with the wonderful and glorious deeds he does. Man's righteousness consists in first owning this fact. I'm a sinner. I have sinned. 
And Job justified himself before God and man by pointing out his greatness, his good deeds, I, 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 and not considering at all that it's not by works of righteousness that we do, but it's according to God's mercy that he forgives our sins and gives us eternal life. Job had no concept of that. And no matter how much evidence he put forward of his awesomeness, I'm great, and look at all the great stuff I did. This is the evidence, and he kept talking about it, and guess what? His situation didn't change one bit. His self-righteousness, that's not what it's about. And then what happened? He went from... Uh, being the stubborn know-it-all who turned it all to himself. And then the self-pity, the depression. After Job chapter 29, the tenor of this man's speech changes from good deeds and pride and self-righteousness to woe is me. And it's a, it's a chapter of woes, Job 30. I'll read some of them to you. These are just some selected uh, verses from Job chapter 30. He had talked about how the young men had honored him. And they would just stop speaking when he walked into town and got to the city gates. Well, now he says, and all those young men mock me in song. I've become a byword among them. They detest me and keep their distance. They do not hesitate to spit in my face. Now that God has unstrung my bow and afflicted me, they throw off restraint in my presence. He goes on, and now my life ebbs away. Days of suffering grip me. Night pierces my bones. My gnawing pains never rest. I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me. The churning inside me never stops. Days of suffering confront me. I go about blackened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I become a brother of jackals, a companion of owls. My skin grows black and peels. My body burns with fever. My lyre is turned to mourning and my pipe to the sound of wailing. Woe is me. God had limited Satan to touch the man and not take his life. And what the devil, what the enemy accomplished was to embitter Job, embitter him. And in his bitterness, he turns against God. And he accuses God. And in his misunderstanding and in his ignorance, he has given up completely on God and God's providence. And he justified himself. And that's easy for all of us to do. I don't want to speak for any of you. But I've been there. I've been there. Not to this extent. Thank you, Jesus. But his heart was hardened, hardened against God. Why? Because things didn't go his way. And that, 
that happens, things don't go my way. Sometimes I'm, I'm saying things to God I probably shouldn't be saying. And when that occurred, Job turned on himself and he went into this defeatism and self-pity and that's a natural human condition. Uh, we can all relate to it. And when that situation turns inward, when it turns to all the great things that we've done and justifying ourselves and why we deserve to be blessed, then the self-pity comes. And oftentimes that self-pity, it begins the self-medicating. God doesn't care about me. God doesn't care about my life. God, he's totally, totally and completely abandoned me and he's left me here to fend by myself. So I'm gonna get my comfort. I'm gonna get my comfort, uh, first of all, maybe by talking badly about everybody. And Job ripped his friends and I'll point out all their faults. Oh, you think I got faults? Let me point out all your faults. And it could, it's gossip and it's innuendo and it's pointing the finger at other people. And that feels good. Brings me comfort. Or, or, or I might just go to the freezer and bust out that half gallon of ice cream and start digging into it because that's gonna make me feel better because God has abandoned me and I'm gonna plop down on the sofa and I'm gonna begin to binge Netflix. And for the next three and a half weeks, I'm not gonna shave, I'm not gonna take a shower, I'm gonna stink and I'm gonna watch every Netflix show on some particular whatever series that I've missed because that's gonna make me feel better. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'll just pound a few beers, you know? God doesn't care about me at all, so I'll just do that. Or better yet, I'll just go down to the corner and I'll shoot up some China White. And people do that because they feel so abandoned sometimes. It, it, or perhaps it's, it's relational pain and suffering. So wh where's the, where am I going to go to get comfort when my relationship is falling apart? Oh, it's all digital nowadays. You can go get that digital comfort. Online, online pornography. Oh, yeah, I can do that because I've been hurt. I'm down. I'm, nobody cares about me, and I'll, get, I'll, I'll take care of that, and I'll feel so much better, and then I'll probably connect with someone online and justify it all and, uh, because I've been wronged, and the next thing you know, I'm in the arms of someone else. And You know how that story ends. And self-pity, self-pity takes us to these places and it's poison. Self-pity is self-poison. It will take you down. It'll take you from pity to the pit. Just drop the Y, you're going to the pit when that happens. And Job was fortunate enough that this mysterious young good friend arrived in his life before he started this whole self-prescription and self-medication to, to take him deeper down into the pit. And he, he heard his friend. He heard Ellie who said, God knows about your pain. God sees you in your pain. It's not about your feelings. Just because you feel like he's not around, he is. And don't be ruled by your feelings. Don't let them take you out there because you're going to go down. God is with you. God is with you. And far be it from God to do evil, Elihu said. And in Job 33, he said, Job, God does speak. 
And he speaks in a variety of ways. Job, it might be a dream. Yeah, God comes to people in dreams. It might be a vision. God speaks to people in visions. But then he said the hard words none of us want to hear. None of us. God can speak to you on a bed of pain. When you're on a bed of pain, through constant distress. Job, when you realize that and you turn to God, not in bitterness and anger, not in railing against God, justifying your, yourself and claiming your innocence, but when you turn with a submissive and a teachable heart that's willing to be transformed by God's Holy Spirit and you realize that God is working in you a testimony for you to share with others about how he worked in your life. God's working in your life and it's not gonna be all for vain. You can use this to help others. And when you have that willingness, when you have that willingness for your own testimony of God in your life to expand and to grow. And, and Job, when you, when you turn, instead of inward, outward, and you turn to God, what happens? What happens when anyone does that? Elihu, the wise young man, said this, Job 33, 27, and 28. And they will go to others and say, I've sinned. I have perverted what is right, but I did not get what I deserved. God has delivered me from going down to the pit and I shall live to enjoy the light of life. And you go through this, and you realize God's with you. It's going to inspire you to tell others. And you're, you're going to tell them. And, and in our time, what are we going to tell them? We're going to tell them about the ministry of Jesus Christ. Because what Elihu said, it sums up the ministry of Jesus. Job did not have the benefit of Jesus Christ as we do in misery and denial that he, that he needed any of this work done by God's hand. And when that occurs to us, let's take the, take the example from this man and not turn inward, turn upward, turn Christward. And the comfort and the freedom that we're seeking to alleviate the pain that consumes us and depresses us and drives us to the, to the pit of self-pity. It's only found in Jesus Christ. The answer, the comfort, the freedom is only found in Jesus. He gave his life. So I did not get what I deserved. That's what Elihu said. What happened? I repent. And I say, I did not get what I deserved. I didn't get what I deserved. Thank you, thank you, God. And you did not get what you deserved. Got mercy. You know, we need to be reminded of that when we're beating ourselves up. Remind yourself, Jesus died for my sin. Do you know what he suffered? It far outweighs anything that I've ever suffered. He took the punishment for my rebellion. He took the penalty for the, the rebellion of all of mankind. 
all who, who rebelled against God, Jesus took the penalty of that and he received the penalty of the sin of the world. That includes my sin and I'm grateful for it. He won for me eternal life. He won for you eternal life. We need to remind ourselves of that when we're in those doldrums and, and, and we're taking ourselves down. He's delivered me from going down to the pit and he's given me the light of life. Remind yourself of that. And you know what? The, the, the pain of this life, it pales in comparison to the light of eternal life. He gave me the light of life. Well, then I should start living in the light. Get out of that dark pit of self-pity. Stop denying that God, God needs to work on me a little bit. And I start living in the light, living in the light of eternal life. I want to declare I am a, an eternal creature. I'm not, a, I'm not a mortal. No, no, we have immortality. And that's a guarantee from Jesus Christ to live eternally and spend eternity with him. And I'm going to spend eternity beyond the pain of this life with my creator and my Lord Jesus Christ. Remind yourself of that. And you can say, therefore, I do not have to live in the darkness of self-loathing and destruction of self-medicating. I'm going to live free of that. How many of you can say that this morning? How many of you can say that you can live free of that? How many of you believe it and you can declare it? Let's, let's stand and close our service in prayer. If there's anyone who doesn't really, you've never come to that, that you can be free. You can be free of this, the, the, the pain of this life. And yeah, I know it's not going to be natural, may still feel it and you're gonna you're gonna you've been ruled by those feelings but they're they fall far short of eternal life christ jesus has something to offer beyond this life he's, he's the only one that can that, that can offer us this opening this door to eternity outside of this life and this misery that we might be suffering if you've never received it, you can receive it today and do what the man Job did. Say, God, I don't know what I'm talking about. I really don't. I don't even, I don't understand all of creation. I don't understand what you've done. And I'm just going to quiet myself. Say, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm going to repent of that and ask you now. You take over. You. And now we have Jesus, and Jesus paid with his life to remove any condemnation of sin from us. Well, I'll take that. And I'll, I'll trust you'll carry me, you'll walk by me, you'll help me. If you've never done that, you can do it this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, thank you for the light of Jesus Christ, the light of life that he offers. Thank you that he can pull us out of the pit God, if any of us in this room, uh, if any of us are questioning that, if there's anyone here who has uh, denied that they need you in their life and they've turned and they've been stubborn and they've even gone to that place of, 
uh, self-pity and woe is me, and they've gone to self-medicating. God, I pray that they would open their hearts to receive Jesus Christ this morning. And if there's any in here that, that are, or any who have who've strayed a bit and say, I, God, I need, to, I need to reconnect with Jesus. I need to repent because I've walked from my Savior and my Lord. God, I just pray that hearts would be open right now to be genuine and sincere before you and come back. God, Lord, minister and show your mercy because you're a merciful God. You're a God of loving kindness. You're a God who is slow to anger and you're patient. And God, I just pray that you would be patient with any of us who have strayed and you receive anyone who's never come to you before this morning, Lord, and they are right now. And we thank you. We thank you, God. I pray you'd pour out your blessing on every person in in this sanctuary this morning, you would carry them, you would remind them how you're with them. God, remind us, help us to seek you in your word and see your great promises and the truth, the truth that endures to all generations. Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. Thank you, God. Thank you. May your blessing go with everyone in this room. Blessing, the blessing of God. Go with them all, God. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.